Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Hive Jive, actually a very special edition of the Hive Jive, but we're going to go through and do a couple of disclaimers here off the front, just, you know, right up front, right off the bat. Basically, number one, you are going to notice a little bit of a sound quality change because today we are going to be doing an interview online. And the second disclaimer to that is that Ken is going to be absent from this episode, mainly due to the fact that we are doing an interview online and the technological challenges that come along with that. So uh, Ken has has bowed out of this one. You will be able to catch him on the bonus episode for those of you on Patreon on Thursday. But today we have a very special guest sitting in for Ken. We have Mr. Andrew Cote, who is New York City's premier beekeeper, a fourth generation beekeeper. And without any further ado, we're just going to dive straight into this. What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host Ken Milam and John Swan as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. This episode is brought to you by a landlocked naval officer who needed a new hobby outside of drinking snobby IPAs. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show, Andrew. I greatly appreciate it. Good morning, John. So great to be here with you. How are uh, how are things up there in New York? Is it is the weather finally starting to act like spring instead of winter? It kind of went from winter to summer. Oh, in- you, you skipped spring entirely. <laughs> we didn't need it this year, I guess. Oh man, does that uh, does that cause kind of a bit of whiplash for the bees? Well, the bees really started popping over the last week, I'd say, because there were hives that I thought just were not going to take off this year. Suddenly, I needed to add extra supers to them, so that that was good. It, it, I know that one reason that we had a, a slow start was because we had such a, a cold and wet April, but uh, we've caught up now with the weather. It's it's been in the 80s up here. Oh, nice. Very nice. Apparently, though, the whole city in New York is just like solid in bloom. You guys have flowers everywhere and a lot of these manicured little spaces that are just gorgeous. We, we do have an awful lot of uh, bloom at the moment. I think something like 24% of all of New York City is in the shade of a tree at some point. And so we have an awful lot of food uh, for those bees to, uh, to take in. So, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good place to be a bee, I'd say. <laughs> very good, very good. So, for you, let, let's kind of go back here with uh, your history a little bit. So, you're actually a fourth-generation beekeeper. So, I, yeah, that's right. For you growing up, um, what, what is your first memory of beekeeping? You know, um, it's kind of like if you speak a certain language in the house or if you, if you live in a certain place, you don't really necessarily think of it as an event. I don't remember beekeeping being such a thing in my house because it just existed and my father did it and my grandmother had done it. And so it wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, some sort of um, moment where it came to us. It was just always there. However, uh, I do remember around 10 years old or so wanting to spend more time with my father and beekeeping was the perfect conduit to it because even though it was hard work and there were stings occasionally, um, I got his uninterrupted time and that was to me very important. 
Yeah, no, actually, that makes perfect sense as well. You know, if you wanted to spend time with dad, you had to be out there in the bees. And uh, that just kind of helps incorporate it. Well, that's really cool. And, and, and it makes perfect sense, too, because if you are, if the family is heavily involved in it, and you're raised in that environment, then to you, it's it's second nature. It's not anything unique, or there's no event, hey, you know, this one month, we're going to go out and do this thing. It's part of your life. So that would totally make sense that it's just totally integrated. But also, I just want to point out, we weren't We've never been commercial beekeepers. We're sideliners at best, and at that time, really more hobbyists. But it, it has been a, a part of the fabric of our family for a long time. But we've never been a big operation. Well, until now, <laughs> for you. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe I, I maybe we're making a lot of noise about it somehow. I'm not sure how, how big we are. We're certainly not very important. Uh, well, I don't know about that. I think anybody, even if you, if it's just an individual beekeeper in their backyard with one hive, they're, they're pretty important. They're making a difference and helping out with everything in the ecosystem and, and kind of life in general. It's uh, one of the fun things that Ken has actually noticed or to watch Ken go through is once he got started in it, it started opening his eyes to all these other things that he would have never paid attention to before. And he'll get so excited. It's, 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 very entertaining to see this big old man turn into this jolly little kid, you know, and he'd be like, Oh, 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 I just saw, or I just noticed, or, you know, what dawned on me. And it all stems from the fact that now he's keeping bees and paying attention to the bees. So. I think that's true. I think even now, uh, even though I've done it for, for, for decades, uh, when a swarm comes along, for example, I get just as excited or just as frustrated if it's my own swarm or just as, Whatever it is, uh, there's a lot of emotion attached to it. So, yeah, yeah I think um, there, there is an excitement there, a childlike component. And um, it's nice to, to be able to be so enraptured by them year after year, decade after decade. Yeah, I would agree with that. And there's no matter what, there's always something new that they teach you. And I've said it on the show many times that it doesn't matter if you're just starting or if you've been doing it for 30 years, there's always something that will stump you or that you'll be like, wow, I didn't realize they did that. Or why are they doing that? Or, you know, what does this mean? And and so it's so fascinating. Um, I go through and I mean, my my business itself has so many different facets and, and aspects to it. And I was doing a consultation for a lady here just recently and actually had the opportunity to catch a queen actively stinging and killing the other queen cells as she had emerged first and was going through. And I, I just happened to, was using a top bar. And so I just happened to flip that one comb over and was looking at the cells and she was balled up on top of one of them and she had her abdomen extended down inside of it and she was going to work. And I, I have these moments sometimes where I'm like, so caught up and fascinated and then this other little voice is like, you should be recording this. And I'm like, oh, so I get my phone out, you know, but so I actually got to catch that on uh, on film. And I was very proud of myself because it's something that we we teach and we know happens, but you don't hardly ever see it in the actual act of being done. You know, her going and assassinating all of her rivals. So that was pretty awesome for me. I, I tell you, you should be proud of yourself. I've never seen it. I've never seen it happen. Yeah, it, it was a fluke. I mean, it literally was a fluke. I it, it was a one in a lifetime possibility, and it just happened to see her. And I was like, "What is she? Oh my God, she's actually killing the queens!" You know, like that was really cool. So you have bees or beehives. Well, you got both bees, obviously, but you have them spread across New York City, and you've got them in various different landscapes and settings. And a lot of that is actually like rooftop beekeeping, which 
for me is a completely new thing. I, I just was recently asked to keep bees on top of a hotel here in Austin, Texas. Unfortunately, like I gave them all of the best case scenario on where they should be, the location, the setup and everything. But the way this building is designed, the one place they can go where they want them because they want them where also the you can see them from inside the lobby kind mm. of at an upward angle. It is the opposite of everything that I told them we need. You know, it's facing the wrong direction. The wind blocks on the wrong side. There's no westerly shade. It's just, it's, it's a nightmare for me. And it's actually added a whole new appreciation for kind of a, a different approach to beekeeping that I normally wouldn't do. But it's something that for you guys, a lot of places up there, that's your only choice, depending on where you're at and where you live, is, is to have it on a roof. Yes, um, I do take care of uh, apiaries on, on many rooftops in New York City. Also, I have them in community gardens, on private balconies. Uh, I have them in cemeteries, a lot of places. Uh, so one does have to get creative. As far as the rooftop goes, you're right. Um, finding the proper place to put them that balances the needs of the bees, the, the needs of the beekeeper, and that means access and ability to carry heavy equipment up and down. And then of course, the, the wants of the uh, client, that's, that, that's tricky sometimes. The bees could be exposed to much more sunlight than might be good for them, perhaps more wind than, than one would perhaps wish for them to have. And um, little things come up that you wouldn't think of. For example, the, the, the rooftop, uh, in New York City, at least, and I'm sure where you are in Texas, uh, often uh, is painted with a reflective paint that's very, very, very hot. So yep. if you're working the hive, if the bees land on the ground in a, in a normal setting, they're on the grass, it's no big deal, but they land on that roof and they instantly burn their feet or their wings to the extent that they're they're going to perish. Yep. So I have to bring with me some kind of sheet or moving mat or something with a hole cut out in the middle for the hive, put it over it so that when, because they will fall out when doing an inspection, at least they'll make it back into the hive safely. Also, I found out that I need to carry some kind of a, I don't always do these things, I should, but I ought to always carry some kind of a container that will hold the smoke of the smoker in because if I go back into the building with a smoker that had been lit, even if I'm not detecting it, that smoker could set off the fire alarms. Yep. And that's a big deal. So those are just two of a hundred little pieces of uh, uh, urban beekeeping that, that, that vary a little bit from beekeeping in a field somewhere. But urban beekeeping and rooftop beekeeping has been around for a long, long time. And when I was researching this book, I found a lot more information than I knew existed about people who had kept apiaries on Broadway in Manhattan in the 1860s, huge apiaries on Brooklyn rooftops in the 1840s, beehives on top of orphanages and hospitals in the 1900s, early 1900s. So um, even though we, uh, this current crop of beekeepers in New York City, sometimes like to uh, delude ourselves with the idea that we're doing something new and inventive. It's, it's nothing of the sort. Yeah, I can understand that. And that's actually, I did not have any clue about that either, that they had, uh, you know, been doing something like that for that long. And that's one of those things where their style of beekeeping even would be radically different than ours. They didn't have to worry about varroa mites and some of this other stuff and the diseases that we do today. So 
it was literally a completely different world at that point, but they were still going through all the same processes that we would, and they had less technology too. So you may have a building where you have the convenience of having an elevator to get you up most of it. They probably didn't have that at all, you know, and it's, uh, you've got to get all that equipment up there. You've got to get the initial hive and bees up there, which that in itself is a chore. Uh, doing a honey harvest, trying to get it all back down, that's an even bigger chore because then it weighs way more than it did when you took it up there. So there's all these little challenges that if you're just on the ground and you're like, oh, I'm going to walk up to my hive with my smoker and my suit and my tool and it's no big deal, you know, it's different than, oh, I've got to go up five stories or 10 stories and, and carry all that stuff with me. Try to find these ways to do the job and do it right, hopefully, fingers crossed, and then make it back down. And I actually experienced what you were talking about with the bees dying for the very first time in April. And uh, it, for us, like Central Texas gets stupid hot. And that's usually July and August, right? So to be up there in April, it was about 85 outside that day. And we were up there, I opened up the inner cover and exactly what you said happened. Some of the bees fell off the inner cover onto the ground. I thought nothing of it because normally they just crawl up the side of the hive or they'll fly and they'll come right back up. And I set the inner cover down, set the lid down, usually use my lid as a stand to set the other box on to kind of keep it up. And I turned around and I looked and every bee that hit the ground was on their backs dead. And mm. I just stood there in dumb shock awe, like what just happened here? And it, it occurred to me that that was exactly it. The roof was so hot that when the bees hit, it was like instant game over. That concerns me because, you know, that's 85 degrees. We haven't hit August when it's going to be 110 you know, and stay that way. So there's all these different concerns that like, I don't think for in my scenario, I don't think that where they've got them is going to actually work. And, you know, I, I keep stressing this to them. We may need to put them somewhere else. There's one other little area that is probably, it's not ideal, but it's better than where they want them, but you can't see them. Even if you're up on the roof, you can't see them. It goes over and goes down into like this little secluded area. But it would protect them from that westerly sun in the, the late afternoon, and it gives them the wind blocks that they need. Um, it would give them more shade, both like multiple times during the day. And I think that would probably be better to move them there. But they're at the moment, they're like, well, let's just see, let's just see. And so I'm stuck in that, well, okay, but ultimately your wants are going to kill my beehive. <laughs> and I'm not not too thrilled about that. But it is a challenge. It is a challenge. And it's for me, like I said, it's uh, it's kind of just dipping my foot in the water um, as a first venture into how this works. So it's it's tricky for sure. And I, I don't know how the parking and traffic situation is where, where you are, but my troubles with urban beekeeping, rooftop beekeeping begin uh, prior to even arriving to my destination because I'll have to get there. And even though during COVID-19, I haven't had much of a traffic or a parking issue, those issues will return. So I could spend an hour easily looking for a parking space. Oh, man. And, and then that just eats up a lot of the day. And then let's say I find one. Then I'll have to walk to where the beehive is and get in the building and get engineering to open a, a door. In the meantime, trying to get up past the doorman, the, um, the super, and everyone else who seems to think that I'm always carrying bottles of honey for them. Uh, you know, you have any honey? Got any honey for me? Can you bring me some honey? Like every time, every time. And let's say I finally get up on that roof. Maybe now I've invested an hour and a half to get to one apiary before I've even gotten any work done. Get on the roof, and then of course, my hive tools in my truck, or my bird <laughs> run out, or something like that. 
So then you go back down, you get what you need if you can't get away without using it. And you get back up. Oh, wait, my meter is going to expire in 20 minutes because you can only do it in one hour increments in, in some parts of the city. So, I mean, I am not trying to complain. I'm only trying to give an accurate portrayal of the frustrations inherent to rooftop beekeeping, at least in New York City. So, yeah, it's, it's tricky. That's very true because that that actually helps put that into perspective too. If if it's it's different if you live in that building and you're keeping hives on the roof versus you're traveling across the city to multiple locations where that is likely not your only stop that day. You might have to repeat this process four or five more times, you know, and that is a huge challenge. Like we here in Austin, we have nightmare traffic, but it is not anything compared to New York City. Like I will never even begin to imagine what something like that is. But we have, the city itself is not very big in the grand scheme of things, distance-wise, it's not very big. And what should be, if you're going north and south, which is what crosses the Colorado River, which kind of divides the center of town, when you're going north or south, a five-mile drive can take you 45 minutes. It's just ridiculous. Now, once we get to a lot of places like the, I'm lucky enough that the hotel, I can actually park on the top of the parking garage and then finagle my way around up to the roof without actually having to go into the hotel proper. And that is great for me. So I don't have that problem, but getting there, it can be a 30, 45 minute drive, just trying to go five miles to get to the hotel because traffic's just not moving. (laughs) But at the same time, if we try to go East or West, we have zero problems at all. You can go 14 miles in barely 15 minutes, whereas you can't go five miles in 45 if you're going the wrong direction. So it's uh, it, it, that is something that actually can be a trick. And then, we have the luxury of, of having hives spread throughout like the outskirts of the, the Metroplex, but that also then, you know, it incurs drive time. And so we may check five locations a day, but that may be, you know, an hour in the truck or more each time going between locations to check it out. So absolutely, I, I also have the, my issue usually arises with, I forgot something is about two miles from the house. So I get in the truck, I'm loaded up, I leave and then I'm just driving down the road and all of a sudden I'm like, ah, oh, like I, I left the smoker fuel or I look in the rear view mirror and the smoker's not hooked in the back of the truck for some reason. And then I got to turn around and go back and, and pick up that one thing. And so, yeah, but to, to do that on a roof, that is a whole nother type of nightmare, I would think, you know, because you get there, you're downstairs. And if you spend the first 40 minutes back and forth and back and forth and up and down, you're exhausted by the time you even get to start you know, and, and you haven't actually opened the hive yet and you've already put in a whole day's work just getting there. You get strong legs. Yes. Yes. So you mentioned, um, you know, the, now that with COVID and everything going on up there, New York was literally a ghost town, um, for about a month and a half. Now things are kind of starting to, to loosen up a little bit and there's, there's a little bit of light hopefully at the end of that tunnel. But what was that like from a, from a beekeeping perspective, like all across the country, and to put a put a lighter spin on this instead of the the darkness that it actually is itself, but you know waterways started clearing up, air pollution started going away because there was not all of this traffic and commotion and chaos all the time going on. So, do you think that it actually had a beneficial impact for the bees themselves? I know that I saw memes floating around and articles here and there, but but honestly, I think it was such a blip, like the uh, absence of of cars and and so on. I think the bees didn't notice. I think that these little creatures have been around 100 million years, and I don't think that they've ever paid us much mind at all. And I don't think that they were impacted by this. 
I like the idea of human interaction uh, avoidance making them more robust and healthier, but I haven't really seen it. But I, I also, uh, like you, I understand the, the gravity of, of COVID-19, of, of course. However, uh, always looking for the silver lining, uh, it has been nice to be able to drive around from apiary to apiary and park easily. Um, I wouldn't exchange it for, for what we've lost, but uh, this is true. trying to find something good in it, um, yeah. that, that's been good. And the bees themselves, uh, they seem to have taken it in stride. It hasn't really seemed to have impacted them very much. That's fair enough. I, I, and, 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 you know, it was just a speculation on, on all of that because you get, you get to actually see the beauty of it. <laughs> so, so you actually, you also have a, is it a nonprofit foundation, the Bees Without Borders? Yes, it's a 501c3. It's called Bees Without Borders. And we're not always especially active, especially because I now have a, a, a small child. And so he's uh, gobbling up a lot of my time. But our mission is to help alleviate poverty through beekeeping endeavors. And to that end, we've worked in many, many places around the world, uh, the Republic of Moldova, Fiji, Haiti, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, uh, even places uh, in, in the inner city, parts of the Bronx, parts of Brooklyn. And we are trying to uh, bring beekeeping skills as a way for people to generate income. And, and that's it. It's very simple. We now have an apiary on the grounds of the United Nations in Manhattan. Well, it's, it's, it's in Manhattan, but it's technically international territory. So we have these international hives on the <laughs> north lawn of the U.N., and so we're uh, working with them and have been for the last uh, four years, I think. So, um, yeah, we have a very unimpressive website. We, we, we are all volunteers. Nobody's paid anything, including the executive director, moi. And we <laughs> just uh, try very hard. And we, we are a very pale, pale version of uh, Bees for Development, which is a British organization that does what we do, but they do it much, much better. Very cool. So you've gotten to travel to some of these places and then go through and kind of help teach. Um, there's some things over there that, you know, we definitely take for granted because there was, I've heard a story before of a lady that was a nurse and she could actually make more money selling honey over there because it's both for a food, but also for a medicinal property. And she could make more money doing that than she could what she got paid for actually being a nurse. And so it's, it's a very viable and precious commodity in some of those countries. And it's a, it's a very unique skill to have for some of them. So it actually definitely helps and it makes an impact if they can go through and learn that. They learn sustainability. They have something that actually helps them feel like they're making a contribution. It gives them something to do, but then they actually can support their family and bring in an income and, you know, be it through the bees or through the honey and, and the wax and things like that. So that's amazing. Good job. Congrats. Well, uh, thanks. They really do most of the work. I kind of uh, go in there uh, based on their needs. Uh, usually they'll write some kind of a proposal or, or they'll express their needs and we'll craft a proposal and, and make sure that that's what they're looking for. And we'll try to find and train a local carpenter to build. Basically, we want this to exist and flourish without us. We don't have a savior complex at all. We just want to be helpful. And sometimes we make suggestions that they reject, and that's, that's their prerogative. And sometimes they're probably right to reject them. They know more about their 
local conditions than we do. But for example, in Haiti, things were very tricky right after the earthquake. And we, we, we did sort of triage there because we happened to arrive a week after the earthquake for a planned trip. Uh, in Fiji, the biggest problem they were having, we found, uh, was marketing the honey. They had this gorgeous honey, but then they were pouring it into old, uh, you know, used, emptied water bottles. And of course, that's fine, and that's a good repurposing of, of a plastic bottle, but with a little marketing finesse, uh, a nice little jar and a label, they were able to sell that honey for 10 times the price to honeymooners who were visiting Fiji. Now, that is good for the people selling the honey, but not as good for the local community who might have wanted to buy the honey. They might get priced out a little bit. So th there's no perfect solution, but um, keeping in mind what's, what's best for the beekeeper. And what, one nice thing is that, as you know, many people can be beekeepers and still have their, their day job. So people could have five hives and, and it won't really take up too much of their time. We, we're not expecting any of these folks to end up with huge pollination contracts, you know, at Mountains of the Moon in, in, in East Africa. We are hoping for them to uh, supplement their income and maybe send uh, one or two more of their children to school. Very good. And that's a, a very admirable thing for anybody to, to go through and do. So again, even though you say, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit of, uh, it's not us, it's them, but still you're helping facilitate that. So thank you again for that. Well, you're, yeah, thank you. We, 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 we do try. I mean, we don't always uh, get it done as, as well as I wish we could. Um, and one of the nice things is that we've gone over with volunteers who bring new perspective and light. And I think it changes everyone for the better. Um, we all have to pay our own airfare. That's how, uh, how focused we are on using our, our limited funds for the project. So when I go or when a friend goes, we, we pay our own expenses. Um, we ask the host organization if they could help accommodate us, but it's not really that we can't find accommodation. We just want them to take some ownership of it. And generally we, we end up footing all the, all the bills, but that's, that's okay because we are in, in a position to do that uh, more than they are. So um, it's, it's a great collaboration. Anyway, most of the time it works out really well. Very cool. Um, switching back over real quick to the COVID thing. I have seen on your Instagram feed, you have some very interesting masks. <laughs> yes, I do. And in fact, uh, my wife tells me that uh, the more of my face the mask covers, the more attractive I become. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. And so, yes, uh, I'm at the farmer's market, the Union Square Green Market, usually Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. Sometimes I miss the Mondays, especially these days, my little crew of beekeeping helpers and bottling helpers. They're, they're all scattered to the four corners of the earth right now. So, um, but yeah, um, I've got to wear a mask at the market because it's required. I feel I should wear a mask at the market because I think it's sensible to do so. Uh, but there's no reason why uh, one should not try to have a little bit of fun with the masks. So yes, I have had some unusual masks and uh, it has uh, gotten a little bit of attention and I, I hope and just made people smile a little bit, but uh, eh, no reason just to wear that surgical mask all day. Although yeah. I do have one of those under the fun masks. I, yeah. you know, safety first, but. Yeah, no, that, that is uh, that I got a kick out of that. I was going through and looking at some of your recent photos and saw the, the different 
styles and designs and stuff that you had going on and they they get pretty elaborate there was that was pretty cool i got a kick out of that so it did it even for us clear across the country here it still brings joy and, and laughter so that's well, listen, uh, now that we're getting those high 80s uh days i don't know how how many more of those masks i'm going to be putting on that it was okay in the 40s but uh, <laughs> yes i can understand that i um we still do our best to do the same thing here and for instance, just yesterday, I was out doing an actual bee removal on a job site to do that. And it's already hot enough whenever you're wearing, like when we're doing that, we're in a full body bee suit and yeah. you've already got all this other stuff going on. But then to add a mask to it, it's just like basically sliding off your face because it's just soaking Ooh. wet and it's it's miserable. <laughs> but you're trying to be a trooper, you know, still try to smile underneath it and, and acknowledge what the client needs and go through and get it done. But man, it is a pain in the rear. <laughs> it, sure can be. it sure can be. Yeah, absolutely. So you actually are in, uh, you're, you're about to release your book. I think it actually comes out when this airs, it will come out the next day. I believe it comes out on Tuesday, right? Uh, yes, sir. Tuesday. Yes. And the book is basically kind of a year in your life of just some of the random things that you encounter there in New York when you're going about your normal B-Day, correct? That's right. So um, I framed it in 12 chapters and they're January, February, March, et cetera. And they go through a typical year of beekeeping. But in my uh, style, I'm going to call it a style. (laughs) Uh, My style of writing is such that it bounces from one subject to another, but they're all related somehow, of course, to bees and beekeeping. And um, for instance, uh, each chapter should have something about the bees themselves. So in January, what's going on inside the hive and how the, the queen is in the center of that ball and they're shimmying to keep her warm and, and so on. And what's happening with the bees in New York City specifically. But then how in January, because it's so cold in the Northeast, we generally take a Bees Without Borders trip somewhere. And so I may talk about a trip. I think the, the, the first chapter talks about a trip to Uganda. And then I bring it back in February and it goes on and on. I talk a lot about swarms in August and then I'll talk about uh, what happens within the community of the bees when there's a swarm and then maybe some swarm stories. And uh, it goes on like that. It's a memoir. It won't set the earth on fire, but I think people (laughs) will enjoy it. Uh, I hope so. Um, I've been very, very fortunate. We've gotten good reviews so far. And the one uh, bad review I got delighted me. It made me want to read the book because the the, the criticisms were so ridiculous. Yeah. That that piqued my interest. So... uh, (laughs) I said, oh, okay, that's good. There, there truly is no bad press. Yeah, there you go. All, all, uh, all attention is good attention when it comes to that. It, and if, if somebody's hypercritical of something, then it does exactly what you just said. It makes other people be like, but why? Like, was it really that way? Or why would somebody say that? And then they want to go read it too. So it, it all brings in the attention that you need for sure. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm a very thin-skinned guy. So this is on an obscure website that I don't think anyone will find. <laughs> I mean, places like the Wall Street Journal's book review gave it a glowing review, so that might have a little more clout. Uh, but it's been um, it's been an interesting ride, uh, and and I'm actually very happy it's going to come out. If for no other reason, I don't have to do any more edits or, or think about things like that anymore. Because when I first would write a chapter, I'd write it. I felt 
that I had done a pretty good job. I sent it to the editor. She'd send back a note telling me that she was very pleased with it. And I would just breathe a sigh of relief because I'd worked so very hard on it. She'd send another note saying, I'm going to send you a couple of ideas. And then I'd get it back and, and the entire chapter would be eviscerated. And right. <laughs> move this here, put this last, elaborate on this, remove that. But like that could have been the most important part perhaps. To you, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. I, I, I know that the editors know their job better than I do. So I took every suggestion very seriously. I worked very hard on it. Uh, I usually had to work on this book between like three and seven in the morning because that was the only time I could have quiet because of that toddler and uh, just a lot of work to do. So it, it was a labor of love. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that this part is over and that yeah. I get to just sit and, and chat with another beekeeper about it. Yes. Yeah. You get to do the fun part instead of all the, the arduous work that went into it prior to that. The, yeah, uh, no the book. traffic and no traffic to get to you. I just, you know, I woke up. I have no pants on. I'm just talking <laughs> to you. you know? That is actually, you see, I, I was a little hesitant with all of the the technology and that because we used to we the studio. Okay, so backtracking, we do the podcast in a radio studio. So like we're legit. We're in there. We've got all the technology we need. We've got somebody over there running the soundboard for us. We're a little spoiled sometimes, and that that's just life. And then all of a sudden COVID comes along and nobody's allowed in the studio. And we're trying to coordinate how to do this show where you've got Ken out there at his lake house. You got me in town. You got our producer at the radio station. Cause they're the only person allowed in the building kind of thing. And it just, it made it really interesting. And we keep, it's very bizarre because for, for it being a radio station, for whatever reason, when you do a phone call into the studio, it's not great. Like the sound quality is not great. It it truly sounds like you're on a cell phone with bad reception and it doesn't matter if you really are or not. And so that is a little bit annoying and frustrating for me. But the concept of doing like this to go through and do a video interview or an interview online, we had never done it because we had never had to. And so as we're moving forward, because at first it was like, oh, it's just going to be a couple of weeks. And then it was like, oh, it's just a month. And here we are like two and a half months later. And we're like, I don't know if we're ever going to see the studio again. (laughs) So we've got to figure out how to continue doing the show and make it work and do the stuff that we used to do. Um, Because frankly, I'm running out of other BS to talk about without being able to intersperse some of this stuff in there. So it is is kind of fun. But after you do it a few times, there is a little bit of like, well, this is kind of cool. I can, I can hold our meetings and our conference calls right here from my little home studio. And it doesn't matter, you know, like you've got the comforts of home and, and as long as you can keep in your case, especially, you know, the little one from running over and jumping up on your head and and me keeping the dogs and everybody out of the room and everybody quiet. um, That's about the biggest challenge. So it it is kind of a nice little uh, reprieve from some of that. I don't have to get in the truck and drive down to the station and have a meeting with people. I can just click a button on the computer. (laughs) Very nice. I, in fact, drove to another location just so that that little one would not come in because there's no way he wouldn't have not, not only have inserted his face into the video, but he would have touched every button on this computer by now. (laughs) And he knows knows daddy's not going to hit him. So he's not really afraid of anything else. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, Oh, this is cool. Shiny. What does this do? Look, you know what? This looks a lot like my game. Let me take this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a challenging aspect for everybody in this new times when it comes to working from home. They normally don't have to to worry about what the little one is doing while they're at work. And now the little one's like, but you're here. It must be to play with me. 
<laughs> we we had had uh, had studio time reserved to do the audio book in March, mm-hmm. and right up until one day before we were going to do it, going to do it, and then they had to cancel it. The, the The building was closed. So okay, so ten days ago, they came to my apartment and set up a little home studio for me to record the audio book. Now, through no fault of their own, because they really did a great job, but that was a Manhattan apartment. And I think probably the audiobook will will sound pretty good. However, I know that there are going to be times that the listener will hear the tension in my voice because I will have read every sentence three or four times probably because a man dragging his recycling down the stairs, boom, 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 <laughs> or the bus stopping in front and leaning on the horn. Uh-huh. Or something like that. Like that came through. We we put moving blankets over the the windows. We set up a little a little box almost that I was kind of hunkered down in. And at one point I said, you know, I'd really like to stand up and do this. You know, I'm reading and reading and reading. And they said, well, you can't really do it because like all of the look. I don't know the technology, but the sound will be different. Was the answer? Yeah. So it was weird, but the audiobook is done, and I read it. And so if my voice isn't too grating for anyone listening and uh, you um, don't feel like sitting and reading a book or can't, uh, then the audio book, I think, is also less expensive, but it might be a good option. Yeah. And then for everybody out there listening, we've been talking about this. The name of the book is actually Honey and Venom by Andrew Cote. And you guys should be able to, by the time you listen to this, you should be able to find it out there. It is through Penguin Random House and there is the... You can get a, I think actually a digital version, the audio version, or you can actually order a copy of the book as well. So plenty of opportunities out there. And I actually think that that's really cool that you did the audio version of the book as opposed to having somebody else do it. I think that is, that's admirable. And, uh, and it added another, you know, I'm sure for you, it's another one of those, whew, that's done. Thank God, you know, but <laughs> Amen. I think, uh, I think it definitely adds a unique perspective because you go through and you you listen to some of these audiobooks that are narrated by just some other individual and they may have you know a, a good studio voice to do that but it's just like anything whenever you go through and you you read something you put your own inflections in there and so mm-hmm. the person reading the book to you could be putting emphasis in areas where the writer may not have intended that to be the main focal point or there's not as much passion to it because for you it is your book. It is your story. You know what was going on when when that actually took place. And so as you're recounting it and retelling it, there's an emotional aspect to that. And there's going to be, you know, when it's really funny and joyful, you're going to be remembering that and you'll hear that in the tone. And so I think that that's actually an awesome way to do that for um, for something like this. So I'm looking forward to that. That'd be very cool. Well, you know, we, we first we had James Earl Jones and then we had Morgan Freeman. And then uh, who was the other guy? <laughs> you know, they put, but they were fighting. They were bickering uh, over. And I said, "Listen, guys, guys, I'm just, I'm just going to do it myself. And I'm, I'm just going to do." It. Christopher Walken too. He, there he there you go. came in. I, I said, "Guy, I don't want you all fighting over who gets to do it. Let me, let me just do it. I'll so, take, I'll take the hit on this one, guys. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Morgan Freeman. That, that right there. That's like the end all, be all. And, and now that he is like well entrenched in beekeeping. 
that's kind of the 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 goal. <laughs> Ultimately, yes. I have said that numerous times. I'm like, one of these days, one of these days, we're gonna get him. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I haven't seen any anything other than that one meme about it and, and, and that one interview. So I'm dying to know more about this apiary and this refuge. But yes, from what I understand, he's got something like a 100 acre bee resort. And yeah. he's taking care of bees, I think, in Mississippi. And and I I want to know more about it. So please do. I mean, you've got me. I guess the next logical step would be to get Morgan Freeman. It's got to be. There's not really anywhere else to go other than that. We have to keep going up. Yeah. Yeah. Got to keep going up. Um, I actually, so I'm, I am actually working on that. I have a associate uh, acquaintance of mine who I used to work with back in another life. And he grew up in Mississippi his mother still lives there in the the area where this little bee preserve is. And Morgan Freeman, and uh, I don't remember if it is his lawyer or another individual, they own a little like restaurant diner there. And he sells his honey in there as well. And so the guy that I know, his mother knows all these people. And I keep, every time I see him, that's the first thing I did is, have you talked to your mom yet? Have you sent her down there? You need to go down there. She needs to go down there so she can put in a word, you know, and I've got friends every now and then that will just randomly tag Morgan Freeman in posts that we do. <laughs> like, <laughs> but one no of these idea. days. I had no idea I could go to a diner in Mississippi and get Morgan Freeman's honey. I mean, I'm, I'm yep. already planning a road trip. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to check it out. I just think, you know, it would be awesome. And I mean, come on at this, it's the voice of God. <laughs> you know, that's true. You know, in the book, in the book, I talk about how, um, what's, I lost it. Henry Fonda was a beekeeper. The actor, Henry Fonda was a beekeeper. I know his son did Yuli's Gold and and most beekeepers know that film that Peter Fonda acted in, but his father, Henry, was a beekeeper and he called his honey, I think, Bel Air Honey, and he would sell it or probably give it to, to his friends. Uh, Yeah, there, there have been a lot of uh, highbrow well-known uh, beekeepers out there in yeah. the world. They're, they're actually having, and sometimes they, well, anybody, famous or not, it's kind of interesting sometimes. They all just kind of seem to start coming out of the woodwork, and you wouldn't know necessarily. It's almost like this secret identity. It's like, oh, my God, you actually you keep bees too? You know, like, I would have never guessed or I would have never known. Um, it's kind of entertaining. But then for everybody else who's not a beekeeper, hands down every single time, the number one question, do you get stung? Yeah. And the answer is yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. And all the, the time. How many times have you been stung? And it just can't answer it because nope. it's been many. It's, yeah. My, my other question that usually follows it is, does it hurt? And I, I, it takes a lot of restraint for me to answer that politely. <laughs> I like, yes, I get stung and yes, it hurts. And every time I want to say four letter words, but I mean, it goes away in a few seconds, but I still have that reaction every time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know. I've noticed as I've gotten older, I can be stung and I don't mind it as much, but then there's that one that just gets me. It could be at a, on a fingertip or just behind the knee. Overall, the worst place to be stung, in my opinion, is inside the nostril. That's yep. been the most painful place. I know that I was once stung under the tongue. One got in my mouth uh, because I was eating a piece of comb. And I was so careful. I picked it up out of the hive. I, I looked it over. But in that two-inch journey from, from hand to mouth, a bee jumped in on it. And that one was bad. But the nostril, I think, is the worst. Yeah, 
I pain wise, I don't I've I've had like the corner of the eyebrow, uh, mm. the temple and the corner of the mouth. Those have been like the three closest to the key targets. But the odd thing was that the one on the mouth and the one on the eyebrow didn't really cause any swelling or do anything. The one mm. in the temple, it was in just this perfect little soft tissue area. Half of my whole head swole up. Like my eyes swole shut. I had this drastic reaction that normally I don't have. And I think it found like just the perfect spot to nail it and, and got me. Um, the chin actually, right at, right there in the cleft of the chin. That one hurt because that was like a nail gun. It's skin and bone. There's nothing else there. <laughs> You're hiding your cleft with your little goatee. You'll have to. Yeah, yeah. It's it's in there somewhere. Um, no, it. Uh, that was one of those first, you know, rookie mistakes when I first got my suit and you lean forward and put your chin out and the veil touches your chin and yeah. nailed me right through the front of it. Ken is still trying to learn that lesson. He's uh, he's up to four or five and he still hasn't got it. <laughs> I, I mentioned it in the book, but my father, every time I or my brother would get stung, he just laughs at us. And so it got to where we gave no reaction at all to being stung because we didn't want to give him the satisfaction of, of being able to laugh at us. So I can take a lot of stings without the people around me knowing. But like you, if I'm alone, a lot of colorful language often comes <laughs> yep. out. Yep. Um, I, I do that. I try to gauge my surroundings and, and my audience and, and try to do as, as good as I can. Um, yeah. The ones you'll see me wince sometimes I'll have something in my hand. And if they get me in the hand, you know, yeah. I can't drop what I'm holding, but I might tense up or, or kind of wince at it. But usually I'm fine. But when it's for us, it's when we're doing the removals. Um, that's when we get stung. And, and it's 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 expected and understandable because we're literally destroying their house at that point. You know, we're sure. opening up a cavity that they're in and we're taking them out and RBs down here, I affectionately call them Texas redheaded mutts. Um, they, they have some spicy genetics in them and they, they have a little bit of a, an attitude. And so we, we run the gamut of, we, uh, the ones we did yesterday were just the nicest bees ever. They were super sweet. Didn't really mind that we were going through and doing things. They never even like turned to focus on us. They were just focused on their own stuff. But we'll run into other ones where every single bee in the colony is basically a guard bee. And it's just wave after wave after wave. And they're, they're coming straight for your hands. And it doesn't matter what you're wearing. They can sting through the leather gloves. They can sting through the nitrile gloves, you know. Um, yeah, so it, it makes it interesting. But that's my hands are probably the predominant spot that I usually get stung is, is there. Every once in a while, one of them will uh, join me in the truck. And I don't realize it. And they will remind me either halfway home or right as I get out of the truck. And it'll be, that actually probably was one of the worst, was up in the armpit. Mm. Uh, I had one crawling up my side and didn't realize it. And I picked up a grocery bag and put my arms down, compressed it, and it it nailed me. And I dropped the bag, hat dropped through, <laughs> like kind of like a, I wasn't sure what had just attacked me. It was so far removed from when I was actually with the bees that it, I didn't associate it at first. But yeah, that one was probably, now to think about it, that was probably the most painful and the most surprising. <laughs> well, there's some small satisfaction in knowing that that bee is dead. <laughs> <laughs> It'll never do that again. Never. Yeah, that is true. Wow. Well, sir, I am. Uh, I have taken up a quite a little chunk of your morning, and I know that you have plenty of things that you need to be doing in your busy life. So I will kindly let you go, but I do greatly thank you for joining us here again this morning. It was greatly appreciated. And uh, just go ahead real quick for everybody, if they want to follow you on Instagram or want to check out the book, kind of go ahead and give them whatever you would like them to have where they can find you. Okay, um, prepare to be underwhelmed by the website andrewshoney.com 
the uncreatively named website. And uh, when you get there, yes, we are a real company. Yes, it is a multi-generational business. No, we have not focused all of our energy on that website. So apologies in advance. So it's andrewshoney.com. Um, for more up-to-date stuff, since the website hasn't been updated, look, you know we're real beekeepers if we're not updating our websites and so on. That's right. We um, got other things to do. <laughs> other things to do, my friends. Um, but the Instagram is also Andrew's Honey. So what is it? At Andrew's Honey. Yep. And the book is published by Ballantine, a Penguin Random House imprint, Honey and Venom, Confessions of an Urban Beekeeper. And I had to change a few names in there because I don't want lawsuits and I don't want tears, but I think uh, people will be entertained. Uh, it's not necessarily a book only for beekeepers. In fact, I assumed that I'd have uh, more non-beekeepers reading it. So while it is a, a tutorial in the life of honeybees as well, it's not a how-to book on how to be a beekeeper or anything of the sort. It's more little stories and vignettes of uh, beekeeping in this place or that, dealing with people. And uh, well, what can I say? I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, go out there and check it out. See what you guys think for sure. Well, thank you again for your time this morning, Andrew. It was great talking to you. Hope to uh, chat with you again someday in the future and hope that you and your family stay safe and well up there and you guys have an amazing bee season. Thank you, you also. What a, what a pleasure to see you because I usually just hear that melodious voice on the podcast, but now I see that that handsome face connected to it and I think how, how unfair that one man has all of this, but... Oh, <laughs> well, thank you, sir. <laughs> I greatly appreciate that. Good talking to you, John. I really enjoyed it. The show might be over for now, but the sting won't last long. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast as we'll be swarming in with new episodes Mondays of each month. Until then, behave yourselves.